Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind. With Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to the science of success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the science of success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 1 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, We explore emotions and facial expressions in depth with one of the world's top experts, the psychologist who pioneered much of the work in this field, Dr. Paul Ekman. We discuss the six to seven major universal emotions, how emotional reactions are unchanged across cultures, ages, and even species. We examine micro expressions, reading people's faces, talk about how to manage and control your own emotions, and much, much more. I'm going to give you three quick reasons why you should join our email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. There's some amazing stuff that's only available to our email subscribers, so be sure to sign up. First, you're going to get awesome free guides that we create based on listener demand, including our most popular guide, How to Organize and Remember Everything, which you can get completely for free along with another surprise bonus guide when you sign up and join the email list today. Next, you're going to get a curated weekly email from us every single Monday called Mindset Monday. Listeners have been absolutely loving this email. It's short, simple, filled with evidence-based strategies, articles, TED Talks, and more that we found interesting in the last week. Lastly, you're going to get an exclusive chance to shape the show, vote on guests, submit your own questions to our guests, change our intro music, and much, much more. So be sure to go to successpodcast.com, sign up to join the email list right on the homepage, or if you're driving around, if you're out and about, if you're on the go right now, just text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. That's SMARTER to 44222. In our previous episode, we discussed everything you ever wanted to know about sleep, 
We examined the findings from hundreds of studies across millions of people and pulled out the major findings about how vitally important sleep is. The global sleep loss epidemic. The stunning data about sleep and productivity, the simplest and most effective evidence-based strategies for getting better sleep, and much more with Dr. Matthew Walker. If you want to sleep better at night, listen to that episode. Today, we have another titan of psychology on the show, Dr. Paul Ekman. Dr. Ekman is known for his work as a pioneer researching the field of emotions and how they relate to our facial expressions and is the founder of the Paul Ekman Group. These studies, along with many others, led Paul to being named one of the top 100 most influential people in the world by Time Magazine and one of the most influential psychologists of the 20th century by the American Psychology Association. He's written over 14 books and has 170 plus published articles. His work has appeared in the New York Times, Psychology Today, and much, much more. Paul, welcome to the Science of Success. Thank you. Well, we're very excited to have you on here today. Your work has informed tons of what we talk about on the show, so it's, it's truly an honor to have you here. Oh, glad to be available. Well, I'd love to start out and dig in a little bit about kind of the universality and, and the power of facial expressions. Well, when I started out more than 50 years ago, I always believed that expressions were a poor source of information, just a harbor for stereotypes and misunderstandings. Then it shifted from that to the belief that, well, there is information in the face, but it's culture-specific. And what my work and the work of others has shown, I think as definitively as evidence ever gets, is that there are some universals in expression, that our expressions are not unique to each culture, and that some of our expressions you can see in great apes and chimpanzees, that these are the product of our evolution, and culture does influence what triggers the expressions. Culture does influence our attempts to manage our expressions. Culture does influence how we feel about our face, but culture does not write the rules as to what muscles will be activated when fear is felt or anger or disgust. There are actually six or seven emotions that have a universal expression on the face. Those are, I'll have to count them on my fingers as I tell you, fear, anger, sadness, disgust, surprise, enjoyment. And the evidence for contempt, I think, is almost as good, but it's not as widely replicated. So that's a lot of information from our faces. You don't need a Berlitz book to read the face. But the mistake you have to avoid is what I call Othello's error. Othello read Desdemona's fear expression accurately. What he misunderstood is what triggers it. Emotions do not tell you their trigger. You can know how someone's feeling, but you don't know what triggered it. And often our preconceptions about what should be triggering it may be misleading, as it was for Othello. But the face has a universal signal system. Charles Darwin was not the first to point this out, but perhaps one of the most influential and famous people to point it out. And he learned that because in his five-year voyage on the Beagle around the world, wherever he went, he was convinced he could understand their facial expressions 
but not their gestures. And he was right on both counts. Gestures, things like the AOK, are a terrible insult in Sicily, for example. Gestures are culture-specific mini-language. I say mini because they're not, they don't really have a grammar. Uh, you gesture, rarely will you admit four gestures in a row linked by a particular order. Uh, gestures are pretty much singletons. So, but they're culture specific, unlike the expressions, which are universal. I find it interesting that out of all of those emotions, they're all skewed towards kind of negative emotions. You know, you have enjoyment as the one positive, maybe surprise, but that could, could also most definitely be negative. Well, I have 16 different types of enjoyment, but they pretty much share the same facial expressions. So there isn't just one way of enjoying yourself. There are at least the 16 that I've identified, but they don't have different signals. The signal is the same. It may differ in its strength or in its timing, but it's the same signal. Why is that so? Well, you'd have to ask a higher authority than me. I don't answer the why. I just answer the when and how questions. That makes sense. You know, it's funny, circling back to the, the idea you talked about a second ago of Othello's error. You know, I'm a poker player, and it makes me think of, of poker tells, which obviously are very kind of wound up in this. If you can see a tell that might be a strong emotional reaction, but you don't know if it's a reaction because they're bluffing and they're scared or they have a great hand and they're scared that it still might lose. And so it's very dangerous to read into certain reactions because you can you can sort of commit that error of not understanding what's actually triggering that emotional response. Right. We often think it's what fits our preconception of what should be triggering it. And that may not be right at all. So it's a danger. We can know how people feel, but we cannot know from their expressions what triggered it. Now, sometimes we can tell by what we just said that it led to an immediate response. But even that can sometimes be misleading. So facial expressions tell us the emotion. They don't tell us the trigger. I want to dig in a little bit more and hear about how kind of scientifically validated and universal the work you've done around uh, facial expressions is? You would have a hard time getting any respectable scientific journal to publish new evidence on the universality of facial expressions because it's been established in the judgment of most of the scientific community. There are a few holdouts who don't agree, but I published a paper a year or two ago called What Emotion Scientists Agree About. And I first identified how many scientists in the world consider their special area of interest to be emotion. Well, 248 as of two years ago. And then I surveyed them. What do you think has been established beyond reasonable doubt? Well, certainly the universality of facial expression was the opinion over 90% of emotion scientists had been established beyond reasonable doubt. So much less about uh, what areas of the brain are involved, much less about the triggers, but certainly the universality of facial expression, pretty well established, as well established as any scientific fact can be established. And I think it's fascinating. I, I read somewhere that you, through the course of your work, studied more than 15,000 people and, and you found these conclusions across everything from, in some instances, kind of apes and non-humans, 
to infants to many different cultures as well. True enough. Tell me a little bit about specifically your trip to New Guinea. I know that was one of the most influential moments and kind of inflection points in, in your work and your research. Well, I started out by doing studies in some 16 literate cultures, some in Asia, some in South America, where I would show them photographs of a facial expression and ask them to choose from one of six or seven words, what was the emotion being signaled? And I found a very strong evidence for similarity, for universality, regardless of the language or culture. But it wasn't conclusive because all of the people I was studying, whether it was in Thailand or in Argentina, had all been subject to the same mass media influences. And perhaps they had all learned expressions, the meaning of expressions, from the media, that not from their evolution. So to deal with that loophole, I had to find a culture that was visually isolated, that it had no exposure to media, no books, no magazines, no photographs, no films, no video, and if possible, no outsiders. And in 1966, when I searched for such a group, there weren't many left. I knew time was running out. I had to go to the highlands of New Guinea, Papua New Guinea, and hike for four days to get into a visually isolated culture where I was the first outsider they had ever seen. I showed them the first photograph they ever had seen. And so that research was the most difficult to perform, but the most important in ruling out the possibility that similarities in expression were due to learning from common media instead of being the result of our evolution as a species. So I think we've established that these universal expressions are evidence-based, that they're universal, that they're detectable. You can see on people's faces whether they're experiencing anger, fear, sadness, etc. How do we practically integrate that information into our day-to-day -day lives? For somebody who's listening, how can they take that science and use it in some form or fashion practically? They're already doing it. You don't need me. Everybody responds to people's faces. It's a very powerful stimulus, commands attention. You don't need to go to school to learn how to interpret it. But from about six months of age on, you can get good evidence of differential response to different facial expressions of emotion. What you didn't know is, uh, before my work and the work of others, was whether it was the same across cultures. Yes, it is. You don't need the Berlitz book of facial expressions when you travel around the world. You won't know what triggered it, and that may well be different. You won't know how the person feels about the emotion that they're showing. That may well be different. But regardless of culture, if the person is not succeeding in interfering with their expressions, you'll see the same configuration on their face, the same expression for the same emotion regardless of culture. And that's for six or seven emotions. I know one of the ways that, that you've practically kind of grounded this, and you've done a tremendous amount of work on this as well, is 
in detecting liars and, and detecting lies. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, that's a specific application. We could all lie with words very easily. You know, I was really impressed with what President Trump told me this morning about what his next plans are. And he listened to my cautions. Now, I think I said that in a very effective and meaningful way. It's a total lie. So we can lie with words. That's what words are made for. They're made for communication, but it's very easy to lie with words. Much harder to lie convincingly with your face. I found only about 10% of the thousands of people I studied who could effectively uh, lie with their face in a way that I couldn't detect. Now, most of us are suckers for facial expression, even rather poor faked expressions are believed. And that's because most of us don't want to know the truth. We want to know what the person wants us to know rather than how they actually feel. Do you really want to find out that your spouse is unfaithful, that your adolescent is using hard drugs? No, of course you don't. In a sense, you do, but you do and you don't. So we are all unwittingly collaborating and being misled by rather poor facial expressions. They don't mislead me, and they don't mislead the people I train on how to detect lies from facial expression. It takes about an hour to two hours to learn how to do it effectively from the face. I even have a program on the internet that people can buy that teaches them how to spot lies from facial expression. Learning how to spot it from the sound of the voice and from the words is more complicated and there is no currently available training tool like the one I developed for the face that's available on the internet. So tell me a little bit more about that. So this is a trainable skill set that somebody who has, you know, is listening to this episode wants to go out and in, in a few hours be able to read somebody's facial expressions. How yes. do they do that? Well, they go on the internet and they put in the letters M like micro, E like emotion, T like training and T like T, M-E-T-T. And up will come the training tool and they will pay a fee, I think it's around $50, and it'll take them about an hour interacting with the training tool, and they'll become very accurate in being able to spot micro-expressions, the very quick expressions that leak attempts to conceal feelings. It won't teach them how to spot false expressions. I know how to do that. I can teach people how to... CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. ...to do that, but that's not the tool I developed. Our tool I developed was just for training people to spot the micro-expressions that occur that leak concealed emotions. Is this something that takes continuous practice to be able to wield, or is it like riding a bike, where once you learn this, you can continue to recognize every day and see people when maybe the twinge of sadness or anger or something kind of flashes across their face? We did some research to find that out, and we found out that it does not decay over time. And I believe the reason is that once you learn it, you use it. So you're practicing it and honing it all the time. I would like to do an experiment where I trained people and then blindfolded them for the next week so they couldn't practice it, see whether they still retained it. But nobody's willing to be a subject in that research, and I'm not going to do it. And what about defending against someone who can read your kind of facial expressions, whether that's planting false expressions or covering up your own micro expressions? Is that something that's possible and can it be trained? I run a training in lie catching. I don't run a school for liars. So I have not tried to train people to be better facial liars. So I don't have any evidence whether or not it's trainable. My suspicion is most people cannot learn it well enough to fool someone who's received my training in how to spot such deceptions. So my poker game, I'm out of luck in terms of my ability to conceal my emotional reactions on my face. From someone who's been trained using my 
METT, my microexpression training tool. Yes, your best bet is to wear a mask. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. So I want to now talk a little bit about how our facial expressions can actually impact our emotional state. I know you've done a lot of work about that. Tell me a little bit more. Well, it was a surprising finding. I didn't expect it. Those are the nicest findings. Those are discoveries. A lot of research you do is simply proof of something that you suspect or know already, but you need the evidence for it. But then there's discovery research where you didn't know what you were going to find, and you find something you didn't expect. And that's so about the fact, which I think is pretty well established at this point scientifically, that by voluntarily making one of the universal facial expressions, you generate the changes in the body and in the brain which occur when that emotion is evoked more naturally. So you can turn on any emotion if you can make the face. The hardest one to turn on, paradoxically, is enjoyment. And the reason is that one of the two muscles you have to move, the muscle that orbits the eye, only about 10% of people can do voluntarily. The muscles, movements for anger, fear, sadness, disgust, and surprise, everybody, nearly everybody can do. And so they can turn those emotions on if they want to. But the, mus the muscles for enjoyment, everybody can do one of them, the one that pulls your lip corners up, but only about 10% of people can at the same time contract the muscle that orbits the outer part of their eye muscle. Tell me a little bit more about that muscular movement. So is that kind of widening your eyes or what exactly is? Uh, there are two muscles that orbit your eye. The inner one is a fairly close circle. If you drew a circle right over your above your upper eyelid down about a half inch below your lower eyelid, that's the inner orbital muscle which we call muscle six, I'm sorry, muscle seven. There is a larger one, and everybody can do that. You squint, you do that. There's a larger one around that that goes above your eyebrow, around and to the top part of your cheek, and only about 10% of us can voluntarily contract that muscle. And unless you contract that muscle at the same time you contract the muscle that pulls your lip corners, you won't be able to turn on enjoyment. You'll have to do something enjoyable to turn it on, not by contracting the muscles. I'm sitting here right now trying to contort my face to see whether or not I'm capable of doing that. Is it possible through muscular training or other activities to, to learn to turn enjoyment on like that? Yeah, we could train people to do it but I haven't spent much time doing it. It's tedious to do, and it would be a much more difficult uh, task to develop a online training tool to do that. So I run a, a set of techniques for lie catchers, not for liars. That makes sense. That makes sense. So I know that that discovery led your work into looking more broadly at how we interact with and, and deal with our own emotions. Tell me a little bit about that journey and how you became so fascinated with our own emotional worlds. Well, once you open up the question of emotion, I mean, an expression is a signal of an emotion, 
expressions aren't the emotion themselves. The emotions are directed by a number of circuits in our brain, which nearly all of us have if we're not brain damaged, that are innate, but their expression is influenced by our development and what we learn in the course of growing up. So it has a dual influence. And emotions are not simply or only expressions. That's the signal of the emotion. They are memories, expectations, changes in how we think and what we can remember. Emotions act as filters. When we are in the grip of an emotion, we can most readily perceive things that fit the emotion we're experiencing and will by and large ignore things that don't. And in a similar fashion, we can remember from our own memory things consistent with the emotion we're feeling and we'll have a hard time remembering things that are inconsistent with it. So our emotions act as filters on what we see in the world and what we can access in ourselves. And what led you to begin digging into the rabbit hole of emotions? It was there. Who could ask for more? A ripe, important problem that had not been well explored. It was waiting for me. So I took it on. It took me between five and ten years to make real progress of steady work on it. And I was pleased to find something so important that had not yet been well explored. And I was glad to have the time and the funding to be able to do so. And what were some of the first findings that you discovered when you began your work on, on emotion? Well, the universality of facial expression was the very first finding. It was the first issue I took up. And other scientists have said that the publication of the universality of facial expression, my publication of that, resurrected the field of emotion, which had been left dormant for 30 or 40 years. There was quite a bit of research on it in the 20s and 30s, and then it was dropped completely in the 40s and 50s and got rejuvenated after the publication of my findings on universality. Now it's a hot field. There are two scientific journals dedicated just to the field of emotion, publishing research just on emotion. If you don't mind me asking which journals are those, we'll make sure to include those in our show notes for the listeners. Well, one of them is called Emotion, so that's really easy. And that's published by the American Psychological Association. And I don't remember the name of the other journal. It's probably something like the Journal of Emotion, but I don't remember its name. I don't read those journals at this point in my life. I'm retired. And what did you find in terms of emotional reactions across different cultures? Do we have you know, similar reactions or are they sort of culturally shaped? Well, they're both, in part because we have emotions about our emotions. And cultures differ in how what they teach their members to feel about feelings. So when you get angry, do you get afraid of your anger? Do you get excited about your anger? Do you enjoy being angry? How much does it depend on who you're angry at? These are all things that different cultures and within a culture you'll find differences on. I'm going to dig a little bit deeper into emotions. When we find ourselves behaving in an emotional way, how can we 
start to step back and not only understand that better, but going to deal with situations like that more productively or more effectively going forward? It won't be easy. Now, individuals differ in what I call their emotional profile. For some of us, we go from no emotion to a moderate or strong emotion in less than a second. We have what I call a fast onset, while others go from no emotion to a strong emotion. It takes quite a few seconds. Most people have a better chance of being able to control their emotions or even sidestep and not engage. Our former President Obama was a good exemplar of someone who had a very slow emotional onset. Our current president, I think, but I haven't been able to study him as much, has a fast emotional onset. I wrote an article, uh, which was published somewhere, about what are the personality characteristics we should want in our leaders and the people who can initiate a war, or at least the first steps of a war. And one of them, those characteristics is a slow, not a fast emotional onset. It's safer. They have more time to consider. Do they really want to engage? And that's the major difference that I've studied. Now, I've proposed that we also differ in once we're in the grip of an emotion, how long it endures, and that we also differ in what I call the offset. Once it begins to decay, does it take us a long time to get over the emotion, or do we go back to a neutral state very quickly? I know that people differ in their emotional profile and their onset, duration, and offset. I don't know. Someone could do research to find out how early in life is this apparent and how consistent is it across the life cycle. Don't know. If I was 10 years younger, I would take that question on. But it's a 10-year question, probably take 10 years to resolve, and I don't have 10 years to live. You know, that's interesting. In my own personal experience, I can definitely see that. I feel like I'm someone who has both a slow onset of emotions and also a slow, I guess, offset of emotions. So it takes a long time for an emotion to kind of hit me. But once it does, it really sticks with me for a while. And it's hard for me. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars. But as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. Auto trader. Me to kind of move beyond it. So you have a long duration, long onset, long duration. And then once it begins to ebb, does it go back quickly or does it take a while for you to get over it as it ebbs? I think it varies. I mean, it's not a huge amount of time, but I think it definitely, I can't, if I get, you know, put into, let's just say a negative emotional state, it takes me a little while to kind of come out of it. And I've, I've done a lot of work on, and we'll get into this more, but journaling and mindfulness and other strategies that have helped me understand and manage my own emotions more effectively. Well, having a long onset means you've got a better chance of being able to manage your emotions than people who have a short onset. They, there isn't enough time for them to become aware of the fact that they're are in the grip of an emotion because it's got them in a fraction of a second. And there are people like that. We should not want such people to be our leaders. So for somebody who's listening that maybe has a short onset, is there anything that they can do to help 
widen that gap between kind of reaction or, you know, sort of trigger and reaction? Yes. Here's the steps to take. Keep a diary of regrettable emotional episodes. That is times you've gotten emotional, which afterwards you think, I wish I hadn't. Either I wish I hadn't felt any emotion or I wish I hadn't acted the way I did act. Just write a sentence or two about each entry in the diary. After you've got 30, take a look at them and see what's in common. What's the common trigger that's setting off regrettable emotional episodes? Can you, by that means, learn how to anticipate such uh, episodes and either avoid them or prepare yourself? I sometimes, if I know I'm going to get into what will be for me a difficult emotional episode, I'll rehearse in my mind. I'll play out a whole movie script in my mind of a different way of handling that. Uh, I also find that it helps to notify the other person. If I'll say to my wife, is this a good time for us to discuss a difficult emotional matter? And she may say, no, not right now. I'm, I'm not ready. Or she may say, well, how about let's talk about that Saturday morning? So we're both set and prepared. So step one, make a diary of regrettable episodes. Step two, see what they have in common. Step three, see if you can anticipate and prepare yourself for your next encounter, what will trigger a difficult emotional episode. So you don't have to act in a way that you'll subsequently regret. And tell me about, has there been research or have you done research specifically around the kind of diary or the journal and why that's such an effective tool for <laughs> managing negative emotions or emotions in general? I haven't done any research on it. it. I thought of it too late in my career, beyond the point where I had funding for research, nor has anyone to my knowledge. So take it for what it's worth. I think it's right. I think it'll work. It makes sense from what we know about emotion, but it has not been tested in research. I asked mostly because I'm really curious. I'd love to dig in and kind of understand. I found that strategy to be very effective for myself personally as well, but I really would love to get into some of the science and figure out more effectively kind of what it says about that question specifically. Well, maybe someone who listens to this program will take this on for their doctoral dissertation. Great idea. Listeners out there, you heard Dr. Ekman. Get on it. Another tool that you've talked a lot about is mindfulness. Tell me about how you came to mindfulness as a strategy for, for managing your emotions or managing emotions more broadly. Well, it was an accident. My daughter, Eve Ekman, got interested in it and in the Dalai Lama. And through her, I got to meet and spend, actually, the Dalai Lama and I spent about 50 hours in one-on-one -on -one conversations, which, uh, and our conversations about emotion are published in a book, paperback book, called Emotional Awareness. And we called it that because the key is to develop awareness of when you're in an emotion. Now, emotions usually occur without our having any awareness of it when we're in the grip of the emotion. And it's usually not until after the emotion that we may realize, particularly if someone says, what was wrong with you just then? And they say, oh, gee, I lost my head. What you mean is that you are unaware of being emotional. That's in the nature of emotion itself, is to keep awareness out. That's what saves your life. 
That's why you can drive on a freeway and avoid cars that are veering towards you in a dangerous way without thinking about it. But that very skill that allows you to drive on the freeway is the skill that means that you're not going to be aware of the onset of emotions. The benefit of mindfulness, which is only partially substantiated in research, there's nothing that really contradicts it, but there isn't as much research as I would like to see to support it, is that that's a practice that will increase the likelihood of your being aware of being in the grip of an emotion when you are in the grip of the emotion, not just afterwards. We don't really have a set of psychological tools for generating that kind of awareness. Again, if I was still had a research lab and had 10 or 15 years in front of me, I would take on doing that research. But I haven't, and I don't know anyone who has. Fair enough. I'm, you know, I'm just curious about what topics still fascinate you. And once again, I think that could be a challenge to people out there listening. Maybe it's an opportunity to do a little bit more homework and a little bit more digging. I'm curious. I want to know more about your experience with the Dalai Lama. Well, I felt once we started spending time with each other that I had known him all my life. I felt he was a brother. I've never had a brother. I had a sister, but I never had a brother. But I really felt like I'd met a family member. So strange because, you know, you probably couldn't find two more dissimilar people in terms of upbringing. I mean, he's a Buddhist monk. And I'm a uh, sort of a renegade, non-practicing Jew. I'm raised in a Western, he's raised in an Eastern tradition. And yet we really hit it off. He believes it's because in the previous incarnation, we were brothers. Of course, I don't believe in reincarnation. I have no explanation. He has an explanation which I reject. He finds it amusing that I, the scientist, can't explain what he, the Buddhist, has an explanation for. But that's where we are. We've had a wonderful time uh, conversing, and I think our book, jointly authored book, Emotional Awareness, which is the Dalai Lama and Paul Ekman, and it's in paperback. I know it's in print. It's a book of dialogue, and it pretty much captures, pretty well captures, where our conversation went and what we learned talking to each other. That's fascinating, and I'm a huge fan of, of the Dalai Lama and his work. And we've had uh, several previous guests who've also interacted with him and, and, and learned from him. So for someone who's listening to this episode that wants to kind of concretely implement the things we've talked about today in some way or another, what would be kind of one piece of homework that you would give to them as, as an exercise or a practice or a starting point to implement something that we've talked about today? Well, go online and use the microexpression training tool, MET, M-E-T-T. That'll certainly open your eyes and make you a more accurate perceiver of emotion. Do a search for Eve Ekman, my daughter, and see when she's next giving a uh, workshop. I know that I think this coming weekend she's giving a one-day workshop on uh, mindfulness here in San Francisco at a local meditation center in the Mission District. But you can find that by searching on the internet for Eve Ekman workshops. So there's a couple of things you can do. 
Well, we'll make sure to include that in the show notes for listeners to who want to dig in and find both the training tool and see if there are any upcoming workshops near them. For listeners who want to find more about you and your work, what's the best place to find you and your various books and, and research online? I have a website, and I think it's called paulekman.com. Or just you know, go on the internet and do a search for my name, and it'll come up in the first few. Also, take a look at something that my daughter and I developed and put on the internet. The Dalai Lama said to me, when we wanted to get to the new world, we needed a map. So could you make a map of the emotions? And so my daughter and I and a local cartographer created a map of the emotions. And if you go into any web browser and put into it map of emotions, it'll come up and you'll see it free of charge. And it is a a map of how the emotions work. And it'll help you understand your own emotions better. So there's some concrete suggestions. Well, Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your incredible story, journey, and wisdom. Uh, You're truly one of the most influential psychologists in the field today. And so it's truly been an honor to have you on here and, and learn more about your groundbreaking work. Well, thank you for asking good questions. The worst nightmare is when you're being interviewed by someone who asks really dull questions, but you ask good ones. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or If you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.